0: Welcome to all of you this morning um, after an incredibly inspiring and I think very moving um, time um, collectively. So I'm um, delighted that you've come to join us here for this session on how Christian is aid. I'm Rachel Carnegie. Um, for the last five years I've been working with the Archbishop of Canterbury as his advisor on international development and I now co-head something called the Anglican Alliance, which works across the Anglican communion on development, relief, and advocacy, and long-term partner, friend, and and co-traveller with Christian Aid. On Monday, Archbishop Justin and I met a uh, young man called James, who was from Ghana. And James, aged six, had been sold into slavery. He came from a very impoverished community and was sold into slavery in the fishing industry in Ghana. And um, he spent uh, the next seven years as a slave in the most desperate conditions with many of his um, friends, other little boys who'd been um, trafficked into this work, um, being drowned um, in the cause of their work in fishing. It's a little-known issue. It's on the um, Lake Volta in Ghana. But it reminded me of um, something I once heard, that we serve a God to whom no one is invisible. No one is invisible, that each of us, those little boys struggling in slavery on the lakes of Ghana, all those across the world, are known by name intimately to God. And I think that's something of the flavor that emerged this morning about that care for the most marginalized, the most oppressed. We're coming today then to look at um, the role of faith, the role of Christianity in aid. And I think this can take us in a number of ways. Archbishop Justin referred to the role of the churches in um, aid, in humanitarian work, in education, health, and other areas. So we know that the church is there as a generous and hospitable church reaching out to those in need. Um, but also we have a question as Christians about what is our, our, our obligations in terms of the structures and systems in the world that perpetuate poverty and injustice. We have a very um, exciting full hand of, of MPs this morning, um, and I'll introduce them now. Um, but first of all, to come to Christine Allen, who's Director of Policy and Public Affairs at Christian Aid. And before joining Christian Aid in, in 2012, Chris Christine was for 10 years... Executive Director of Progressio, the Catholic um, uh, International Development Agency, and has also held key posts at a variety of Catholic um, institutions, including CAFOD, the Justice and Peace Commission of Liverpool Diocese, and the Catholic Housing Aid Society. Welcome. Um, next, to, to introduce Gavin. Um, Gavin is um, MP, Labour MP for Luton South since 2010. He's been a shadow international development minister since 2013 um, and is a member of Christians on the left and was previously leader of the City Life Church in Luton, um, a 2006 formed offshoot of City Life. Welcome to you. Um, And then uh, on my um, left, we have Mark Pritchard, Conservative MP for Reakin since 2005, um, has a particular brief around national security. Um, and has previously been Deputy Chair of the Conservative Party International Office and sits on the Difid Select Committee. Welcome. And finally, to, to welcome Tim Farron, MP um, for Westmoreland and Lonsdale and President of the Liberal <coughs> Democrats. Um, you focus particularly on housing and climate change um, in your partnership work, but you've been a church-going Anglican since an early age and describes becoming a Christian at 18 as the most massive choice I have made. So we welcome all four of our panelists. I think the uh, discussion can take us in a number of directions. So I look forward to seeing where our panelists are going to lead us, and then very much look forward to questions and contributions from all of you who have gathered here. But just before we start, I'd just like to pause for a moment in prayer. Loving Father, we thank you that you have led us into a church that is hospitable and generous, responding to those in need. Lord, we hear the cry of the oppressed. And in these deliberations today, be in our words and in our hearts, and may they be acceptable to you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. So thank you. And I'm going to hand over now to
1: Christine to lead us off. Thank you, Rachel. Well, it's a great uh, privilege and pleasure to be here this morning. My first reaction, because I'm, I'm, as you could tell by my introduction, I'm a good Catholic girl. So my first reaction was to try and answer the question. And then I remembered what my job was. So then I uh, wanted to avoid it. (laughs) But I think, um, so in the question of how Christian is aid, I think it's quite, as Rachel said, it highlights a number of different directions that we can go in. So I'll just get the answer to the question out first, as far as I'm concerned. I think you might expect me to say, yes, of course, aid is Christian. But I think, I think the answer to that is much more complex, and that um, aid is m- much more about being human, which it's the most human thing that we can do. As we heard very movingly from Archbishop Justin, that it our, our, it's our faith imperative not to walk on by, not to stand aside and leave people behind. And that uh, depth of humanity that I think is reflected in aid is something that Jesus taught us how to be, how to be more human. But I also think that there are challenges within, within the concept of aid that both challenge us as Christians and that Christians have to challenge too. Churches don't have the monopoly on aid, as you know. We work, particularly as Christian Aid, with people of all faiths and non, but we make a significant contribution around the world, faith groups, to both the, the financing of aid and also the delivery. Churches religious groups are in communities at the very depth of the reality of life, and they're there for the long term. They're not three-year projects that come and go. And the partners that we work with are there in the communities. They were there before we arrived, and they'll be there when we go. Hopefully, they'll be stronger and more strengthened and perhaps a bit more resources after we've left, but they're there in communities all the way. And it's that unconditionality that is so critical here. And I think that we see that in very practical terms in things like um, emergency reactions. uh, in, In the Philippines, for instance, Christian Aid's not a delivery partner, we are working with local organizations who were there before and who will remain afterwards. And that's so critical, that connection, that connected church that Archbishop Justin talked about. And a recognition that it's people within churches who are also suffering. When when a disaster hits or when conflict is around, it is people who are in churches, in communities, that are picking up the pieces with their, their brothers and sisters, with their friends and neighbors. So we have that imperative, whether it be from the Old Testament prophets or from the imperative of Jesus, the call of Jesus to love one another, we have to respond. And that immediate response is really important. Emergencies and humanitarian aid can often be the kind of way in which we only see aid. But for Christian Aid as well, we work in long term development, helping to build societies, build communities, build what's known in the technical term as resilience to help people not become (coughs) dependent on aid, not require uh, the kind of handouts from the future, in the future, whether it be helping to grow businesses, helping to empower women in parliament, whether it be to give people their voices. It's about trying to move away from being (coughs) dependent upon um, people's handouts. And then it takes us to that other side, where I think we're called to be a challenging church. We're both called to challenge and to be challenged by this venture of international development. It takes us into politics. Christian Aid doesn't just deal with the symptoms of poverty, we also want to deal with the causes of poverty. And politics, well, you know, isn't that old saying about religion and politics never mixing? Well, Desmond Tutu had that rather famous (coughs) riposte where he said, to people who say religion and politics don't mix, I ask them what Bible they're reading. (laughs) We've just just finished, you know, we're in post-Pentecost season, so we've just finished celebrating and commemorating the Easter period. And yes, we celebrate the rising of Jesus Christ, but we forget that on Good Friday, the death of Jesus Christ was an abject political killing. He was killed to be silenced. He was killed because he was causing trouble to the people in power at the time. And there's a message in there, too, about the importance of speaking truth to power, the importance of standing up for the voiceless in our world. And that's what Christian Aid tries to do. But of course, Aid is a political football as well. I was very pleased that Um, Archbishop Justin did highlight and pay tribute to the cross-party consensus that there is around aid and the commitment that is in this place and in the other place to the poorest in the world. But we must not forget that, as we heard in Caroline Spellman's prayer for the nation, there is a hardening of hearts in our country at the moment. If you're poor, whether here or overseas, it's much more difficult to be standing up for those people. And we we continue to exercise that prayer that hearts are softened a bit more, that there is not that hardness that carries on. So I think it's an easy scapegoating to, to kick the poorest or to say they pose a threat to us. And I think that's something that we need to keep a watching eye on. Underlying all this, of course, is about our values and our vision, and I think that's where Christianity has to come into its fore, in the way that Archbishop Justin talked about, as a suffering church, as a a compassionate church, as a being-with-people church. But, of course, we don't have the monopoly on getting it right, either. The churches are religion, can often be uh, pulled into positions of conflict, can often be... uh, not exactly top notch when it comes to dealing with gender imbalances as well. And so we've got to be open to be challenged and to look beyond our institutions perhaps into those underlying values of justice, of working for peace, of respect, and of our fundamental humanity. So I'll leave it there and we'll see how the discussions go. Christine, thank you very much.
0: I think I really took from that the the humility, in a sense, for the churches to be challenged as much as we challenge. Um, This was really crystallized for me last week at the um, summit, the global summit on ending sexual violence in conflict. And the faith communities had a a strong platform there and were working um, on a ministerial dialogue. Um, Both able to talk about the role of churches in accompanying survivors of sexual violence, in challenging impunity, um, and working to to end sexual violence, but at the same time, and rightly receiving challenges on um, both the denial that the churches, or the silence the churches might hold, Stigmatizing of survivors, or indeed gender attitudes that may perpetuate and provide the kind of space on the ground for such um, for violence such as this to continue. So I think what you've said holds very true about both being a challenge to the world, but open to being challenged in how we are witness to our loving of God. So I'm going to move now to Tim um, to have a few words from you, please.
2: Okay. Well. um Thanks very much indeed. I, I uh, again likewise sort of looked at the question how Christian is aid, and the simple answer is, is very. Um, so I could just stop there really. <laughs> um, or we could try and unpick it a little bit, and um, I'll, I'll try not to kind of take my watch off and just make sure I don't go on for too long because I can of scribble down a whole bunch of verses um, on the bus on the way in this morning and to try and unpick what what this is, wh- why this matters, why aid is Christian, and what our correct perspective ought to, to be. Um, there is no better place to start than um, you know, Luke 10 and the parable of the Good Samaritan, and without going into it to, you know, in, in too much detail, the critical thing to remember is the Samaritan knows nothing about the Jewish guy. Nothing about him at all. He doesn't assess whether he's deserving or undeserving. He sees him there in need and he meets his need. He doesn't assess whether or not the Jewish guy has wasted all his money on a space programme. Or, or whether or not this guy is particularly morally perfect, mm. or what have you, or whether his country is in dispute with uh, the Samaritans' country, which actually he was. Um, but he it, it just met his needs. So the first thing to remember about our call to uh, to give aid, to to meet need, is that it is to be unconditional, because that is how God is with us and um, i also acknowledge um as has been mentioned already by christine and uh, and uh, others mentioned it this morning the sense of hardening of hearts or a re-hardening of hearts on the issue of aid i was it was almost comical really i was at a big public meeting a week and a half ago in windermere in my patch about whether or not we had on street car parking charges Mm-hmm. In the village and the county council trying to balance its books by um, charging a f- you know, few pence for people parking here and there, and um, and of course one person very earnestly to a round of applause, I'm ashamed to say, said, "Well, why can't we just why can't we just cut foreign aid?" Uh, which obviously <laughs> is what the county council does, but it was this, this sense <laughs> in which it, 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 massive aid programme from Carlisle, but um, <laughs> for the, uh, but but did the point um, I guess that was being made there quite sincerely to mm-hmm. a disturbing amount of approval. Uh, was the sense that this is a waste of public money, and we could sort of curtail all this, and things would be a bit better? And um, that is a nonsense. I mean, w- ignore one's faith uh, background for a, for a moment. The notion that you balance the books and the backs of the world poor is despicable, and end the story. And mm. um, so, um, but you know, there, there will be occasionally. Um, you know, scriptural references to us being a little bit less than generous, and to um, so Mark 14 and uh, the woman who uh, pours a vast amount of perfume over, over Jesus, and she is criticised by the Pharisees. All that could have been given to the poor. Was it for Judas? Mm. Ah, it's Judas, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. So she's criticised by Judas. Mm-hmm. All the money could have gone to the to the poor instead. Um, I think the point to remember in all of this is that. Jesus is of fundamental and first most importance Mm -hmm. and that is is why we give, Um, that is our response to Christ Mm -hmm. and the poor you will always have with you, says Jesus, is not to say, and that's tolerable and that is fine, but if you look to Jesus Christ and you live for him, then your concern for the poor, for the needy, for anybody else in any kind of difficult circumstance, for any lost person should be enhanced absolutely enhanced. I think further as well to you know what the priority should be for all of us and for the church. It was great to hear um, Archbishop Justin saying this really, that mission is what matters most of all. Um, uh, possibly my favourite parable because of just what it says um, is is um, is the the parable of the, the healing of the paralytic as it as it, as it says in the un PC language. Um, but it doesn't matter does it? I mean, mark 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 Two Um, when you've got a guy who hasn't walked, I think, since birth certainly not for many, many, many years great compassion of his friends (coughs) what what good mates, you want mates like that, don't you who are concerned enough for you that they will will take you onto a roof probably really dangerous, cut a hole in the flaming roof and lower you down on the off chance that something might happen to you and of course, what does um, Jesus do to this guy who wants to walk, he says you know, um, cheer up son your sins are forgiven. That's not why I came. I came because I want to walk. Jesus was very clear what that guy needed far more than walking, probably far more than a meal, far more than aid, is to be forgiven. And that is the fundamental thing that all of us need to remember. Forgiveness is our greatest our greatest need. Um, and, and the church mustn't lose sight of that. It's also important that we remember that, in a sense, our our compulsion to give, the need for us to be involved in aid work, is a a response to mercy, to that forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And the the unmerciful servant, so at Matthew 18, um, that is a story about us remembering that it's not the person, the person who we should forgive does not need to deserve our forgiveness. We have been forgiven infinitely more than anybody else we could ever need to forgive or provide for. And our response to mercy is to give and to be responsible for mercy um, our, ourselves. Um, uh, the, uh, and, and one of the things we need to be forgiven for is our treatment of the, of the poor. Um, and, uh, you know, so you've got Proverbs 17.5, He who mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker he who mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker so we are commanded to we are commanded to have respect for to meet the needs of those who are in need amos superb but give it some time Mm. um Mm. but i mean uh, not not just the line, you know. If you're slightly scatological and you and you went to Newcastle University and because you, you, you have to read Viz, when you, you d- the, the first lines of uh, Amos four, you fat cows of Samaria. Uh, it just, you know, it always always creases me. But
3: it, it, it's, it's, it is a sorry.
2: That's probably very very ungodly, but um, but but, the, but it's well, actually it is it is a it is a rebuke to complacency mm. and chapter six even more a rebuke to complacency mm. that you do not need to be personally responsible for exploiting the poor. To be guilty for the exploitation of the poor, mm-hmm. you just need to walk on by. You just need to put your fingers in your ears. You just need to acquiesce when people say there's not enough money mm-hmm. for aid this year. And and so those are the things that you you, you we we need to be forgiven for. And um, and I think just uh, I think just just you know finally this um, uh, love in the Bible. So I've not done a forensic study here, but my instincts are uh, my you know my 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 senses from my understanding of scripture is that love in the Bible is rarely not that there's anything wrong with sentiment by the way and feelings, there's not but it's rarely gushingly sentimental mm. it is almost always practical, mm. hugely practical and never more practical than in Jesus Christ dying for us that the God who made everything you can see and everything you cannot see chose to give his life for you for you, and if you were the only person who ever existed, he gave it for you. A tender God, every hair in your head is numbered, as are the hairs on the heads of every person in need around this planet, and and that is the God that we serve. And and I you know I, and I think as well um, that God did not go to the cross. Jesus did not go to the cross grudgingly he did it with abandon tim keller once wrote a book didn't he called the prodigal god and got a bit of stick for it what do he mean by that to be prodigal is to be lavish to do things with abandon that is how jesus gave his life for us he gave it with abandon not grudgingly and that is how we should give to as a society as a government mm-hmm. and as individuals mm-hmm.
0: Tim, thank you so much for that. I think what you've reminded of is, is is mission, being at the heart of this, and a mission that both speaks of that abundant love and acts upon it, and sees in the vulnerable the face of Christ, and responds to that. So thank you. We're going to move now on to Gavin to hear some um, perspectives from you.
4: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much uh, for inviting me to be here this morning. It's been a fantastic morning already. Um, just for the sake of a historic parliamentary first, I think I might actually try and answer the question and see if we can get all four <laughs> of us uh, to, to do that at the top. Okay. How Christian is aid? In practical terms, very. Mm. Here, in, here in the West, here in this country, if you look at the energizing forces that have made um, development and aid a political issue on the agenda with political significance, mm. by and large, it is the church in this country. And that isn't to say, that there aren't many other groups of uh, all faiths and of none uh, that are doing that. But when you scratch the surface, uh, you see there's an enormous amount of energising activity that goes on from the church. But uh, I suspect the question also hints at the theory. I'm reminded of uh, that old phrase, you know, it, it works in theory but not in practice. Uh, In some ways it can be flipped around the other way around. (laughs) It works in practice but not in theory. But I believe that aid being a Christian issue works in theory as well as in practice. Uh, Others have talked about uh, the bias within scripture towards the poor, the nature of the fact Mm -hmm. that each one of us is created in the image of God. And actually uh, when we deface uh, the created order it's as though we go against the creator Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, But actually, my own experiences in this field are informative to me, certainly. I alluded to the fact (coughs) before, but uh, about 10 years ago, I moved back to where I'm from in Luton, and we, church planted, we established a Christian church uh, that was focused on engaging with people that find it difficult to engage in traditional forms of church. And what we found was, as we went out and did that, as we focused in on building something definitive and definite and clear, Uh, that actually many of us found ourselves in positions where we were challenging up structures of power, where we were taking on positions of leadership and responsibility outside of the clearly defined church. The Spirit of God led us to a place where we were seeking the salvation of others and the transformation of individuals and ourselves. And yet it's as though actually we were led into positions of responsibility within politics, within the charity sector, within Uh, issues around justice and poverty Mm. and all these different things. And we acted surprised when it happened, and I don't know why. Mm. Because that is the story of God and the Christian Mm. church, isn't it? Mm. That actually, when we become focused in on ourselves, we miss all the richness of what God is calling us and leading us into. So it doesn't surprise me at all that the church is energised and engaged uh, in this process of changing the world around it. And I'm reminded of two pictures that Jesus talks about to describe the kingdom of God instructive, because I think uh, we talk about kingdoms at the moment, we become very closed-minded. And yet, of course, uh, our deepest identity, Jesus says, is not our geographical kingdom, it's our spiritual kingdom. It's that sense that we're all connected beyond any particular boundaries. Uh, He talked about um, the kingdom of God being like yeast in the dough. It gets involved, it gets in there. If I gave you a loaf of bread to pull out the yeast, you would struggle because it gets involved in leavens. And for me it's a picture of the church engaged in society, but also in structures and powers and principalities mm-hmm. and various different things, areas that need transformation. The yeast gets in and transforms that dough, makes it rise. You can't point to it, but you know it's there. But equally, Jesus says it's like the mustard seed that's planted in the ground. It grows up and the birds of the air come and find their rest in it. A picture takes on to what you want but there's an idea of that being the church I think actually a, a, a clear and definitive appointed place we can point to and say this structure this institution is providing the framework for human flourishing mm. uh, and we and trust me when you get the opportunity to go and travel um, and see the development work the churches are doing that is a picture that is real and connected perhaps for the first time and I think the call for us as the Christian churches is to do both at the same time build something clear and definitive Mm. and structured but also to be involved and engaged in society Mm -hmm. creating the kind of world that we want. Jesus calls us not just to build something but to transform the structures and powers around us which is why I'll just finish on this point before going to hearing the last speaker and and discussion which is where I think um, a lot of the energy of this conversation will come from. The nature of what we do is not warm and fuzzy it is powerful and brutal and political as well. And I think if there is a message for the church right now, a discipleship challenge for the church, it's not just to say, well, isn't it fantastic? You know, we can all feel really good about ourselves because we care about the poor, and, and mm-hmm. um, you know we signed the postcard and went with the MP. Mm-hmm. And now we've got this 0.7 target, and the job's done. I think the risk that is inherent in the political consensus that exists around aid is we can start to view it um, first of all, it's a done deal. But second of all, actually, as though that's the charitable arm with the UK government. Mm-hmm. You know, the funding bid comes in, I know it's the shadow minister. So the funding bid comes in, it's a brilliant idea, 30,000 mosquito nets, rubber stamp it out the door, and we've done our bit. But Jesus calls us to a life of complete transformation, not mm-hmm. just internally, but externally as well, uh, to transform the powers and the structures uh, uh, that reinforce that inequality in and of itself. And so, I think the challenge for the church is the challenge for politics as well. Not just to view our work as a piece of do goodery, but to say, what kind of world do we want to live in where we tackle those injustices at root? And I think there is a particular challenge for the time we find ourselves in terms of politics right now. We used to live in a G7 or a G8 or a G20 world. In many ways, we're shifting towards a G0 world where individual countries are putting up their barriers closing up, we will not transform the world without demonstrating global leadership and taking people with us. So, what's the message for the church uh, that we are a part of? I think it is actually to gear up and to accept there are political fights to be had as well, uh, that we are called to engage those in those, and all the complexity that comes, it's not just black and white, it's all sorts of shades of grey as well, but our faith equips us to engage in that debate. Let's be that energizing force, but let's also face up to the reality of the challenges that we face right now. Mm.
0: <laughs> uh, Gavin, thank you. I think um, a number of issues emerge from that. I mean, both the challenge to complacency, the, the need for partnership, that the, what the church doesn't, in a sense, outsource its, mm. its um, response to the poor, but actually makes the transformation part of, part of its own heart. And I think it's, it's something that was raised earlier this morning, but actually if we have a vision of God's kingdom, as was laid out in that reading from Isaiah, it is a drive in all of us, a restlessness <coughs> that we need to claim and act upon. So thank you for that. And Mark, find over to you. Uh,
5: great, uh, Rachel, thank you. Um, and thank you to the Bible Society for hosting, along with other organizations, uh, the National Prayer Breakfast <coughs> Um, I thought it was great, and, and thank you to uh, Christine Aid for uh, hosting <coughs> this panel discussion, and thank you for uh, attending. Um, first of all, just a point of correction, point of detail. So I'm not um, um, done for heresy. I was, a, I'm a former member of the DFID uh, uh, Select Committee, so uh, I'm no longer on it, but nevertheless did did serve on it. Um, I mean, yes, feeding the hungry that's important, of course, vitally important. But DFID does a lot more. Uh, And I think the answer to the question is is yes, but not exclusively. Uh, And of course, DFID are involved in conflict prevention, uh, conflict resolution, uh, and I think those are vital, vital parts uh, of what uh, this country does uh, abroad. Uh, Because uh, for those colleagues in different parties that perhaps don't agree with the cross-party support, mostly on the uh, DFID budget, uh, I think when you look at it in terms of both Uh, treasure and blood uh, oftentimes sadly uh, it is far less expensive for the British taxpayer to uh, assist uh, fragile states uh, than help failed states Um, so I say to my parliamentary colleagues that don't agree with the budget Mm -hmm. you know even in hard sort of rugged terms it's it's gonna be a lot less Uh, money for all of us if we're helping fragile states in in conflict prevention and conflict resolution, uh, rather than have a failed state, which often means then we're putting in military intervention, whether at a sort of low-key level through special forces or overtly uh, with conventional uh, uh, troops. Uh, And of course, uh, a lot of conflict will cause migration flows of people, of people leaving in despair or people leaving as they've done over the centuries for economic uh, reasons. But a lot of those folks will end up uh, uh, in this country rather than other parts of uh, Europe, although obviously some uh, go to Sweden, uh, uh, many go to Germany, uh, but many do, as we know, um, come to this country. So it is absolutely vital uh, that we continue uh, to support those fragile states. But it's not just about conflict prevention, it's not just about uh, resolution, it's also about some of those underlying issues of um, governance and capacity building, we can put in all the money, but if they don't have good local government or good regional government or good national government, uh, that that, that money is more likely to be squandered. It's not going to get through to the most needy in society, and again we'll see that pattern of migration uh, and other things as well. Uh, uh, of course, legal reforms. You know, I was with some uh, justice ministers in Sierra Leone recently, and it's absolutely vital. <laughs> that people feel they have access to justice. And my own view is that without justice, there can be no permanent peace in, in a lot of these countries. And we know the importance of the church played in the Truth and Reconciliation uh, uh, c- uh, Commission in uh, South Africa. And we're seeing the importance of that in places like Sierra, Sierra Leone and indeed other parts of the world, not just uh, in Africa, but also in Latin America, and we see the church, <coughs> mostly the Catholic Church, playing a vital role in the reconciliation and the discussion and ongoing dialogue between the FARC uh, guerrilla group and the Colombian uh, government. There are other places uh, in the world, of course, and um, education is absolutely vital, and I recognize the role of the Catholic Church and, indeed, Christian Aid um, in, in in education. unless. We're getting to the root causes, as the bishop once said, you know, we don't want to just feed the hungry, we want to get to the root causes of hunger, and it's absolutely right, and education vital uh, uh, for, for, for that. It's an escalator, as we know, in this country, let alone other countries, uh, to opportunity. I had to get a sound bite in somewhere. Um, but, you know, on, on the peace side, I think, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. This is a verse rather than a sound bite. It's probably more reliable. Mm-hmm. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And I, I, I think, you know, the Pope was absolutely right. And I speak as an Anglican, and pretty, uh, I'm a sinner, there we are, I'm a, I'm <laughs> a sinner uh, and an Anglican. Join the club. <laughs> I, 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 I did listen, but we have a great savior. So um, uh, uh, peace uh, building and peace and reconciliation, absolutely vital uh, because unless there is peace, uh, the schools are being attacked. as you see in, in Nigeria or in Pakistan, or in some parts of india uh, but it's not just about the christian church i think i think if we're to have credibility and i know there's lots of credibility uh, 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 in, in probably more out there than there is on this panel and i talk about myself of course but we are to speak up for freedom of religion uh, freedom of speech and people's the universal rights i think of people uh, to have um, access to education to basic health care but if we're to have credibility I think as the church we need to go in unconditionally into all parts of the world uh, and uh, to make our voices heard but also to stand up against any form of uh, religious uh, persecution um, that said and i s- spoke i think on radio the last few days somewhere and i said no it was on bbc television i said we, uh, about the trojan horse of which justin uh, uh, referred to or alluded to in his earlier remarks then explicitly referred to later in his remarks um i think we need to hear more senior leaders of other faiths in this country speak out against the extremists within their own faith and indeed uh, people in this country speak out and speak up for, for example, an imam in this country. Let's hear a little bit more from them to speak up for the, uh, the Christians that are being uh, brutally murdered all over the Middle East uh, and say that we think they should be enjoying the same freedoms over there as we enjoy over here. So I think tolerance is, is absolutely vital as well. And just uh, briefly, I mentioned unconditional aid, and I agree with Tim on that. That said, the British taxpayer, you uh, and us, uh, they do expect every government to spend the money wisely. And I think that's a biblical principle, to, sp- to spend the money we have uh, wisely and efficiently and effectively. And and, and and whilst we don't have a conditional aid like in the United States or leveraging the aid for political reasons, I, I, I think it's right that we do, um, we do expect... Uh, reform of government we do expect legal reforms from certain so I'll give you an example 80% of the budget of Tanzania it's, it's, it's national domestic budget for running their government comes from uh, our aid uh, program to their country so therefore I think it is incumbent upon us if we're being a candid friend to a Commonwealth cousin to say look you guys need to reform you guys need to be more inclusive in your political process you need to build up the capacity of local, regional, and indeed your national government, and make sure that those elections, that those that are coming up are both free uh, and fair. Uh, So it's not strings attached, it's not conditional, uh, but we can have a candid, robust, in love, discussions uh, with our partners and allies uh, around the world. So it's not just about feeding the hungry, it's getting to the root causes of hunger, um, and I'm proud uh, that it is the coalition government, Tim, but also, uh, Ed Miliband as well, and the Labour supporting as well, that we will commit to the 0.7% uh, of GDP. We have done, we've reached it. Now, of course, GDP goes up and down. That's something we're going to have to watch. Mm. Uh, but nevertheless, we are making, you as the taxpayer, are making a real difference to lives around the world, whether it is, it is those mosquito nets, whether it is disease uh, prevention, whether it is peace building and and, and, and uh, reconciliation, or, or whether it is that very, very important thing of, of food in the stomach. And I'll just conclude by saying that I think it was Tony Campalo, just to paraphrase him, no, it's not the one where he swears in a public meeting, <laughs> so don't worry, uh, famously or infamously, um, but it certainly got their attention. He was referencing abortion, which is another issue, but we won't care there maybe uh, in a moment. Um, but... Uh, he, he referred to, you know, if you ask folks, will you give money uh, to the aid budget to uh, sick children in Africa or starving children uh, in Africa, people write out a check or uh, they'll give a, a gift, that wonderful Operation Christmas Child, the Shoebox Appeal, wonderful, wonderful uh, charity, which inspired me to set up my own charity as a result of that, it's a music charity which I won't uh, bore you the details of. Um, but it's it's this that we need to help our neighbors, literally our neighbors, as Tony Campalo, uh, to paraphrase and said, not just the people over there. It's so often to ease, to clear our conscience, to write that check, to send the parcel mm-hmm. over to Africa, to Latin America, or two or three doors down the road, we don't even know the name of our neighbors. It's making a difference locally, nationally, and internationally. Thank you.
3: Thank you very
5: much. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you. I think you've articulated for us, um, in a sense, the response to some of the root causes of poverty, looking at issues of governance and legal reforms, um, about the crucial importance of being alongside and working with fragile states so that they don't become failed states, but work on reconciliation, um, peace building, which, of which the faith communities have a hugely significant part. Um, and uh, you actually reminded me of, um, I think it was Oscar Romero who said, you know, if, um, if I feed the hungry. Don't hold the camera. All right, thank you very much. You know what I'm going to say. Uh, they call me a saint, but if I ask why they're hungry, uh, they call me communist a communist.
1: communist. Archbishop of Recife. Thank you.
0: The good Catholic yeah. sister here.
1: Yeah, but it's also football, you know. <laughs> um, I also just, you, you uh,
0: reflected <coughs> on the interfaith uh, dynamic as well. Um, Some of you may well be aware that over the last um, four to five years, we've been working very closely um, as an interfaith community with um, DFID um, on developing uh, what was launched two years ago as the Faith Partnership Principles, which for us provides a very helpful policy document for how faith um, works effectively and different partners with faith um, in the areas you've talked about, I mean, both in terms of, of, of the, the peace reconciliation work as well as the humanitarian and development response. And an example of that would be the funding through um, DFID of the health work of the churches in Eastern DRC. Um, given that DRC itself, um, the churches remain one of the structures that's still able to provide health and education where so much of the country has fallen apart. Um, We're going to move now to some questions, but I think um, our speakers have posed um, questions and and given insights in in really four areas. The first is a a practical one about the church there to respond to the needs of the poor, education, health, humanitarian work. (laughs) And the second is a political one about um, celebrating the cross-party consensus, but also thinking about what is the voice of the church, the response to the church, if in the wider national political discourse we're hearing about a hardening of hearts. And the third is a missional one about uh, keeping Christ at the heart of our response. Um, I think Archbishop Justin said just now, we're not an NGO. We are the church. And so it's about speaking of and living out in practical action our faith and our response to that abundant love. Um, And finally, um, as it were, a spiritual response. And you gave us, uh, you talked about the image of God, the human dignity that each is made in the image of God. And another concept, which is so much the heart of what we're talking about, uh, of the body of Christ, how we're all so intimately interconnected and that the well-being of one, is intimately connected to the well-being and flourishing of the other in that sense of mutuality. So just to kick us off, I'm going to ask the first question, um, and you in part answered that for some of your colleagues, but how do we as Christians enter the debate robustly to in a sense soften people's hearts again? What would be some of the answers you'd give if you were, and perhaps you did, on your platform in Carlisle um, and hearing the clap around the room of, well, cut the aid budget and resolve local council funding needs?
2: Well, I mean, you start off by invent how long you, you're given. You're, you're, you're quick, I mean my quick answer is you don't balance the books on the backs of the world's poor. Uh-huh.
3: Um,
2: uh, if you've got a little bit longer, you take people through the reasons why there's been the appalling economic catastrophe what, mm. globally six mm. years ago, and um, and perhaps remind ourselves that the fundamental lead up to all that um, and to get overly ideological about this was a, a failed economic system which is based on selfishness and greed frankly uh, which the developed world bought into pretty much on mass and uh, part of our, um, our, our our making sure we don't repeat the same mistakes is understanding that um, uh, that uh, a a less selfish and less greedy approach to mm-hmm. economics and our own personal sort of aspirations is a is an answer, um, and uh, so I, mean I think that so you, you, you essentially kind of get to grips with the um, with, with the essential unfairness, that you don't end up blaming or, or, or removing from people that uh, the aid that we have chosen to give them on the basis of uh, the fact that times are hard for us, in a sense that is, it, it, we are, um, We again, it depends on what sort of audience I'm talking to. If I'm talking to a general sort of wider circular audience, then you immediately sort of point out the kind of the um, uh, the, the the minuscule nature of our giving. I mean, it's not tithing, is it? Mm. Not 0.7% mm. is a flaming pittance. Mm. And it's, you know, we're all patting ourselves on the, ba- our, our, on the back for having done very, very little, mm. just a bit more than we used to do. And, and I think that, again, you've got to put yourse- ask yourself, you know, put yourself in that position. You are very lucky if you were born in Windermere. Mm. You're very lucky if you were born, you know, in most places in this in this country it is not down to you just as you know it is by grace that you've been put where you are you could, you could easily be in any of these places we've just been talking about and it's not a case of whether one uh, deserves that aid or not it's a case of whether it is right for us to give it and uh, and so i think it's important to be very very robust with people when they say mm-hmm. things like that and um, and you can come up with it. if it was scriptural i remind people you know, that you know want to at I think but very very often misquoted that the love of money is the root of all evil that's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, a love of money is a root of evil mm-hmm. uh, of all kinds of evil. Money in itself even wealth is not wrong but it's when it, but a, d- a huge danger is that it distracts us from what's important that wealth and money just generally can become our God mm-hmm. and the more we share it the more we have it and give it away the more we protect ourselves from a very dangerous idol.
3: Mm.
2: Thank you. Anybody yeah.
4: else? Just just very briefly, um, if you ask people, on average, how much they believe that we spend in aid, mm-hmm. they say around 17%. Yep, mm. yep. Uh, if you tell them that we spend 0.7%, they normally <coughs> think that isn't sufficient after asking that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would, uh, on average, uh, double that figure. Yeah. So I think a huge... Part of the answer, actually, is just a a basic level of ignorance around Mm. what we spend and how we spend it. The other thing I would do as well, um, and this is a huge dilemma for the NGOs, um, when you turn on your television and all you see is starving children, Mm. uh, it's fantastic for getting 2 or £3 a month and absolutely awful for convincing anyone that we've made incredible progress. Mm. So you've got to talk about the unbelievable steps Mm. forward that we've made particularly in the last 30 years. Mm. And we've got to tell that story as well, mm. as per- pressing and cajoling yeah. our politicians to make sure that we ma- maintain those commitments. Thank you.
1: Okay. Um, I, I think that's a, a good, good point, well made, Gavin, actually. And I think it's something that all NGOs have to take very seriously. Um, with Christian Aid, I think one of the interesting things for us is when I've talked to people about the aid debate, um, I've experienced a number of different things, along with what Gavin said, but also this this fundamental sense as well of placing... When when I talk, I place the aid debate within the wider economic issue, so a bit like what Tim was saying in terms of the wider (coughs) economic system, but I also place it within our work on tax. Every year, we estimate $160 billion of revenue is lost to developing countries as a result of uh, tax dodging, for want of a better word, unscrupulous but probably perfectly legal activities. Mm. That dwarfs our global aid bill. And when I talk to people about aid and value for money and all those things that we've heard on the panel, I hear something that's very, very British, which is that Mm. absolutely chronic sense of that's not fair. Mm. And I think fairness, which Tim referred to, is really at the heart of this whole debate. People are angry about foreign aid spending because they're angry about cuts going on in their local environment or they're seeing benefits or they're seeing people getting stuff that they can't get and all that kind of stuff. And it's easy to create a scapegoat. And to some extent, foreign aid is that scapegoat when you talk about kind of encouraging people to think about what's the real fairness or what's the real unfairness in our world, then actually people start to begin it. So I completely agree with Gavin about the fact that there's a, there's a real understanding and a knowledge that's needed about how, what we're talking about in terms of aid, but it's also about placing it within that wider context. And that's why Christian Aid's been working on tax for so long.
5: Thank you. Uh, well, I, I'm glad that uh, Tim said wealth is not wrong. Uh, and he's absolutely uh, uh, right and I don't think you know this uh, sort of city bashing um, big business bashing that we've seen over the last few years I don't think is particularly helpful because I don't think um, I, I don't think that uh, greed and there was greed in the city no doubt about it uh, but we've seen greed in the church over the centuries forgive me perhaps mm-hmm. with a small g rather than capable nevertheless and I don't think greed should be replaced by envy Because the fact is all of us here or the majority of us here um, our pensions will be tied up with the success of the city a lot of the wealth of this nation is tied up with what the city does and in fact what big business does now of course there has to be reform reform is coming reform has already come Um, but a, a lot of the aid money well all of the aid money that we are distributing around the world is a result of people paying their taxes more companies should pay more taxes i agree and the chancellor is clamping uh, down on that mm-hmm. but it is business uh, as well as individuals but individuals employed by business that pay the majority uh, of tax uh, in this country the wealth creators rather than the uh, wealth spenders so i think that's an important uh, uh, context on on how we keep our hearts uh, <coughs> soft and uh, the, British people still engaged uh, with the aid budget. Mm. I think the panel are right that it needs to be results-driven. We need to see more outputs. Um, But I think the media have a very important part to play, and there are certain parts of the media, uh, actually mostly on the centre-right. Even though I'm a Conservative uh, MP, I I think don't do uh, the huge amount of work that aid agencies do uh, justice. Uh, and I'd encourage Christian Aid, I'm sure they do anyway, and other organizations mm. to take some of these perhaps uh, cynical journalists out. They're not all cynical, and not all journalists are bad. As in, as the one missing word on the front page of one of the national newspapers. I saw it last night. it's the Telegraph. Politicians responsible for migrant, whatever it was. It should be some politicians, mm. some politicians, some journalists, some clergy. It's the one missing word from a lot of the media coverage we have. About all sorts of things, particularly about some of the negative aspects uh, of this place. But I also think that the aid organisations and charities themselves have a responsibility to show that they have low admin costs, which the majority do, Mm -hmm. that they are spending taxpayers' money uh, efficiently and effectively, and also because people who give uh, to... Give to aid organisations, perhaps they, uh, they're they entitled to their political view uh, clearly, but when people give to DFID uh, through their tax, they would expect the organisations that DFID uh, deploys and employs to be completely impartial when it comes to politics. So I think some organisations, <coughs> and I'll name one, it's in the news over the last few days Oxfam, but others need to be careful that the money they're spending is going in to put in food into the Stomachs uh, uh, of uh, starving children is going to uh, eradicate uh, disease rather than mounting political campaigns in this country against a government that is actually giving them a huge amount of money to actually go out there and do the job they're supposed to do. So, aid organizations as well as the government have
0: responsibility. Thank you. And I think, I mean, it's emerged from us about a partnership um, government. Uh, faith groups, uh, other civil society groups, um, but also with business and I think that we 've seen increasing shift in that area um, looking towards that engagement with those groups um, I think we 're now going to open up to questions or comments, so please just bring bring them forward for the panel. please introduce yourself as well.
3: <laughs> but I'm also a sinner um, government yes and aid organisations as individuals as Christians I'd like to suggest maybe a solution to the poverty in the world and that is that if everyone in the world is li- in the western countries where we have abundance and upon a regular fast be that weekly and monthly mm-hmm. I can see four immediate benefits first of all it's healthy physically active and able to fulfill our work as Christians and as disciples of Christ secondly it helps us to relate with the poor in the world when we fast, we understand what it's like to be starving to have a a, sum of pains from hunger thirdly, it releases money that we can sacrifice and give to the poor and eradicate the starving and I think lastly it's a true way of giving of ourselves saved it unconditionally. So I'd like to suggest that as one method of eradicating mm-hmm. poverty. My question was going to be, how is Christian Aid funded? And mm-hmm. I understand by government, by companies, but what if we as individuals went away today and each one of us determined to do something like that, rather than relying on government waiting for aid organizations?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So I put that to you for your responses. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Uh, thanks, Martin. I think I think it's really important, actually. I mean, we we see it in the Islamic faith of the holy month of Ramadan, which is going to start just uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, about a week and a half's time. Um, a, a really deep, a really deep engagement um, of of people at all levels, uh, who are not just living out their faith, but also are then giving <coughs> to others. Their uh, have their fast day too, and I'm also reminded that. Um, The Philippines climate negotiator, Yeb Sano, is actually calling upon people to fast Mm. uh, for, I think it's on the first Friday. I can't quite remember when it is, but um, he's calling on people to fast in solidarity um, with places like the Philippines until we get good climate negotiations. So Mm. so fasting Mm. is also a way of of showing your solidarity, uh, not just practically, but if you like, sort of ideologically and politically too. And I think I think it behoves us all to do what what we can, and I think that idea of fasting and bringing it home to people is really important. Um, I mean, obviously, people can. Uh, Some people, if they're sick and all that kind of stuff, don't. But then people find other ways to do things. And Christian Aid asks people to give, act, and pray. So, yes, give your money, but also give your your time and give your commitments. We had Christian Aid Week just a few weeks ago where thousands and thousands of people were kind of doing things, walking the streets, collecting, engaging. We also ask people to act, not just in terms of organising things and events, but also taking action politically and and I think I do I do want to challenge Mark for a moment because I think um, it is our duty to speak out when th- things are not in the right way they should be. As organisations, uh, we we are called to to move into that political space, if you like, to speak out where things are not how they should be. I remember constantly hearing that echo of from from a community. Um, I'm sure you've heard it from all sorts of places around the world yourselves. In my particular instance, this was from Malawi. It doesn't have to be like this. Why, as, as Tim was saying, why is it that your world is so lucky and we're not? It isn't luck. There are political judgments. These are political decisions that are made. There are options, are choices that are made to invest. Um, yes, 0.7% in aid versus a trillion dollars bailing out banks. And you know, you c- you can argue that. But that is the job of politicians, to make those difficult choices. And it's our job to help politicians to do that from the right kind of judgments. And we have to show what that means to each of us, whether by fasting or not.
5: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't have an issue of uh, the church or, or church organizations or church-based uh, uh, organizations speaking out. The point I was making, and challenging all governments and all political parties on whatever issue you know, they choose to decide. Is freedom of speech, freedom of democracy, as I said earlier? but it shouldn't be paid for by the general taxpayer. That was my point, you have differing uh, political views. But I'm glad you've mentioned the Philippines and the word challenge, because I think it's a real challenge for some faith-based organizations and some uh, uh, religious uh, organizations, for example, forgive me, such as the Catholic Church. So the Philippines was reference, and uh, there used to be an archbishop uh, I used to go and see in the Philippines. And it was a great line as he put out his arms to me His name was Archbishop Sin, and he used to say, welcome to the house of Sin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's true, he sadly uh, passed away some years ago, and it was Cardinal Rosales up until uh, a couple of years ago. And I remember having discussions um, in the last uh, government of uh, President Arroyo, who is now President Aquino, of course, uh, and she's got allegations of corruption around her, et cetera. Nevertheless, um, spending in that country on social projects in the last year was 22%. But sadly, the population growth in the Philippines is at such a rate, however much money and however much fasting you might do in the Philippines or indeed in London, <coughs> it isn't going to outstrip uh, the population uh, growth of the Philippines. And that really is an issue. And I'm glad that Pope Francis has at least hinted that this is an issue uh, that the Catholic Church uh, will look at. Because mm-hmm. without some sort of uh, family planning, God, God-based family planning, Uh, then we can spend all the money we want uh, but it is a great paradox and speaking frankly that one of the uh, best organizations in educating the poor feeding the poor and reaching out spiritually to the poor that is the catholic church is also as i say a paradox is perpetuating poverty and hunger all over the world because of their antiquated policies on family planning thank you Did you want yeah
2: yeah, sure i I mean just quickly i mean on uh, fasting we i mean we have a i guess a forgetfulness don't we it is important that we do not add to or take from scripture mm-hmm. um and uh fasting is referred to uh, referenced in both old and new testaments um uh, and uh i'm not going to go into um uh, the kind of all the kind of context of it um but in a, it is we are Called to to fast as we are called to pray, it's meant by and large to be a personal thing. Um, you will be aware of uh, the passages which um, talk about fasting being something you do between you and God, mm-hmm. uh, and there will be occasions when actually a political protest of, of fasting is something. One, you know nothing wrong with that, but I think that that isn't what the Bible refers to when it talks about fasting. It is something you do between yourself and God. It is to say it is. Uh, it can be right It can be an act of repentance, an act of obedience, and an act of seeking closeness to God. So um, I would. Uh, Selwyn Hughes many years ago wrote a great piece on fasting. I recommend it to you. Okay. Um, and just, uh, just finally, in terms of the uh, the question we've just been talking about, I um, it's it, it's 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 great for us to support the church or any other organization tax funded or otherwise that, um, <coughs> that um, makes politicians feel uncomfortable until it's you who feels uncomfortable. And actually we should be made uncomfortable. and there are times I feel uncomfortable. Um, it's, uh, there are times when I'm made uncomfortable, and I think it's slightly unfair and I need to be able to kind of <laughs> put another case uh, uh, to kind of qualify the, um, uh, the point that has been uh, that's been made um but we should neither be pharisaic in the giving of uh, advice and rebukes neither should be pharisaic in the way we re, you know we should be humble uh, and willing to take it and um and the reality is there's loads of stuff we do wrong and if um the church of jesus christ can't tell us collectively and uh, in love when we're wrong
0: who can Thank you. And Martin, thank you for your question there. I mean, of course, it relates back to our reading from Isaiah 58 about this is the fast I choose. Um, much to be reflected. and something about a holy discomfort um, stirred in all of us as we respond. Any other comments or questions? From the back and then here, yes.
3: Is,
0: is so important and yet it's also contributing so much to
4: conflict around the world who'd like to uh, yeah i didn't answer the last one did i so i ended up being stuck with that one thanks very much <laughs> <laughs> uh, i think it's a hugely complex issue which is what politicians say uh, when they don't have all the answers and i don't think i don't think we as a society do we enjoy the freedoms of living in a country which is relatively secure, not least of all because uh, we have defense forces, we need to equip those, Uh, we, in that sense, um, have to accept with a level of humility how we engage in that debate. Um, I would suggest that conflict exists around the world not purely because of that trade. Uh, So the question then becomes, if you accept that there is a legitimate role um, around defence? What restrictions do we put around it? Now famously, the early days of the last Labour government, of which I was not a part, uh, came in 2010, uh, but is hugely informative and instructive for me and I think for successor governments. Talked about the idea of an ethical foreign policy. Uh, the Actually getting into that and what that meant and looked like in practice uh, is well documented. And I think um, our response has to be one of pragmatism, actually, um, and humility around reflecting the fact that we live in a world where our own security is, in part, uh, protected by that, Um, but one where we constantly strive to do better. Um, There are regimes who uh, would use arms against their own citizens or against others Uh, in ways which we find deeply reprehensible, which we wouldn't sell to, or those that we have had a history of doing so. But at the same time, the key issue there, I don't believe, is necessarily that the arms exist. It's around the nature of governance, democracy, change, and others. So I think a, a purely focused foreign policy that looks at that issue on its own probably fails the test. At the same time, you're right. There needs to be that provocation that says, hang on a minute, what are we doing in the productive economy uh, that incentivizes people to put their investment and money in this area? Mm-hmm. And I think there's loads more that we can do and loads of progress that we've made in the last 10 or 15 years as well.
0: Thank you. Anyone else like to come.
5: I'll come over to Tim.
4: Well,
2: yeah, I was going to say, I think, I mean, um, I agree with an awful lot of that. Uh, it is It is complex, but I think we're better strip down to the basics. <coughs> I'll go back to AMOS again, really. I mean, you complacency um, and the fact that you are not directly responsible for the launching of a weapon or that kills innocent civilians for example it does not exonerate you um, and we are accountable to a loving but just God. Um, and that justice is something we should right fear actually. And people talk about the fear of God being the beginning of the Bible, talks about the fear of God being the beginning of all wisdom. You know, we are to fear a God who is utterly just And we should be we should be fearful when we think about the fact that it is entirely if it is if it is any way possible for us to know um, the selling of weapons um, uh, made by or in any way involved in this country to regimes or individuals who use it for genocide for against their own civilians and so on then we are culpable now How we regulate it is a different kettle of fish. I am not a pacifist. I have to say and I very much regret the situation we found ourselves in. Um, I think I would say as a consequence of our involvement in the Iraq war, where almost any military uh, option that's presented is now dismissed as not acceptable. And actually, to not intervene is also sometimes to be complacent mm-hmm. and to allow people to suffer when you could do something about it. So uh, the arms industry and the defence industry and the military are not evils. I do not think, you know, though that, you know we we celebrate, don't we? You know, this year um, certainly we go back to 70 years at D-Day, and we th- and we and we ought to thank God for that kit that allowed us to bring um, an end to suffering to millions of people. That kit was made by people, and it was kit to kill people, but it was kit that was used to, to liberate a continent and to end suffering. So it is really, really mucky and really murky. But I, would, uh, but I think that undoubtedly we have not got it right. And the argument is always, whenever a government gets any, prog- make any progress on this, the industry will lobby and will lobby effectively. This is British jobs, you understand. This is British jobs, you can't put them at risk. If we don't sell these things, somebody else will sell them. And they're quite compelling arguments, but we are still we'll as guilty and still as accountable.
5: Yeah, um, I mean, of course, the other thing is uh, the sale of swords, bows and arrows, chariots and spears uh, was probably uh, certainly been traded uh, in uh, all over the Old Testament, going back, you know, what, 5,000 years, whatever your uh, view is um, of, of the aging of uh, a lot of these uh, books. So it's been going on for years. We just know more about it now. And, uh, and Tim's absolutely right. You know, freedom isn't free. Uh, and we're enjoying the freedoms here today of people who've been prepared to uh, uh, lay down their lives. Uh, often in a tank or in an aircraft or, or carrying a, a, a weapon a- and those of course who are guarding the church right now in Iraq um, in Egypt in other parts of the Middle East other parts of the world they will have a weapon in their hand they may have an armored personnel carrier that may or may not have been purchased uh, from this country uh, but Gavin's right he alluded to the fact that you know we do have arms, Sales controls. In fact, our controls in this country uh, are far more strict than many others. And if they're not buying from us, these countries or organizations will be buying from uh, perhaps uh, countries that don't have uh, the same controls. So uh, I think that's something to be aware of. Just um, more widely, of course, it was this country 20 years ago uh, that was one of the um, uh, brains really behind the arms trade treaty. Uh, which was ratified last November uh, at the United <coughs> Nations and is, uh, was sorry signed uh, uh, and ratified uh, in the, uh, at the UN, and now <coughs> has to be ratified by individual members of parliament, and a lot of them are doing that uh, as we speak. So the UK government uh, I- I is doing a lot at a, a global level, but of course it's not just about nuclear weapons and proliferation, which is a big issue. Uh, the biggest weapon of mass destruction is probably the AK-47, uh, allegedly, although he has died now so it couldn't be sued, uh, but uh, Mr Kalashnikov. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is the small weapons, and the Arms Trade Treaty is trying to get more traceability of those small weapons, not just the uh, big uh, weapons. But as I said earlier, you know, we don't have to have conflict if we can deal and get to the root causes of conflict.
0: Thank you, and I'm very sorry, we're going to have to do catch the panelists um, afterwards. Um, We need to bring ourselves to a close now. I think this conversation could go on much, much longer. Um, But we've considered uh, what it means to respond to that call to fast in Isaiah, to feed the hungry but also to let the oppressed go free. So both to respond to human need, but also Mm -hmm. to respond and work in partnership with all those who can transform the structures that keep people in poverty. And I think um, in response to this anxiety about the the, the wider debate, uh, we have as Christians good news to tell in our gospel, but we also do have good news to tell in what has happened in terms of lifting millions out of poverty already. Um, And i just give just a small example um, in terms of no one being invisible. Um, Thirty years ago, I started my work in development as a teacher in the Himalayas. And in those days, most girls did not go to school. They looked (coughs) after baby siblings at home. Um, Last month, I went back to visit my son, who's followed my steps and is now teaching at a school in the Himalayas. Every single girl in that village is now at school. So we have good news stories to tell, as well as much still to fast forward, to pray for, to act and give for. So, as we close, I want to thank um, both the Bible Society for the whole event and Christian Aid for bringing us together today, and to our panelists, uh, to Gavin and Christine, Mark and Tim, um, hugely for your contributions and for all of you being here, part thank you. of it. <laughs> um, Dion will be closing us in prayer. Thank you. Just by the
1: Greater God, you love the world into life. Forgive us when our dreams of the future are shaped by anything other than glimpses of a kingdom, of justice, peace, and an end to poverty. Incarnate God, you taught us to speak out for what is right. Make us content with nothing less than a world that is transformed into the shape of love, where poverty shall be no more breath of God, let there be abundant life. Inspire us with the vision of poverty over and give us the faith, courage and will to
2: make it happen.